Welcome everyone. My name is Mimi Castile. I'm from Hopewell Wines in Oregon, and it is my extreme pleasure to represent the Porta Protocol today for this climate talk. Um, you all probably know, but Porta Protocol is the place to come to find resources and get involved in everything related to sustainability in the wine supply chain. Uh, and especially um, today, we'll be focusing on the growing piece, um, the land piece, which is uh, very dear to my heart. Thank you, uh, Marta and Christina, our wonderful, incredible ladies behind the scenes at Porta Protocol. And I have with me an excellent panel of guests today, whom I will introduce shortly. But the topic of the day is biochar as a mitigation tool. In the sort of ever expanding ocean of sustainability technologies, you have probably, you're probably here because you've heard the term biochar. Uh, when I first got, got started with biochar, it was really part of more fringe conversations around uh, agriculture, but biochar has now gained um, traction in the mainstream academic and applied research. And its use is being studied for everything from climate change mitigation to restoration of soil carbon stores, recovery of soil structure, helping with nutrient cycles and function, and then very excitingly, soil remediation and detoxification applications. Um, so biochar, if you don't know exactly what it is, is a very specific form of charcoal produced through the process of pyrolysis which is the conversion of organic materials, biomass, woody, manure, all kinds of biomass under very high temperatures, um, greater than 500 degrees Celsius to black carbon in the absence of oxygen. And our panelists will speak a little bit more about its production soon. And this form of carbon is incredibly durable and resistant to decomposition, which makes it very exciting in soil applications, so that it can be a long-term storage form of carbon in our soils. The production techniques used in making biochar are commensurate with its potential benefits, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about here shortly. Um, and given the almost unfathomable sources of feedstocks that we have in agricultural production from animal manures to the thinning of forest biomes for fire mitigation to crop residues, biochar is very exciting as a topic and its potential benefits in the climate crisis are myriad. But for farmers and land managers, biochar is exciting for a number of reasons in addition to the, the climate benefits. And we're going to get deeply into that today and we'll have some differing uh, perspectives actually. So biochar is extremely alkaline. It can naturally lower acidic soil pH and where I am and where one of our guests, Antoine is, um, we, we do have, uh, my native pH is lower than five in some places. Um, so in an, in an acidic soil, it can help to raise your pH. It can help uh, hold soluble, positively charged ions in place, um, making them more readily available to plant roots. It can increase your, or it can decrease your soil bulk density. So it can really be an aid in soil tilth, increase your aggregation potential, aeration. It can help reduce leaching and compost applications. Um, and in soil applications, and it can also bind and sequester toxins. But for me, at least one of the, and I'm in the arid west of the United States, um, one of biochar's 
biggest potentials is in rehydration of semi-arid and desertifying soils. I've seen this benefit myself, and I'll speak a little bit about that when we get into the discussion, but I think it's going to just be very exciting to share this conversation with our guests, whom I'm going to introduce now. So with me today, we have uh, from Switzerland, Hans-Peter Schmidt from the Ithaca Institute for Carbon Strategy. Um, hi, Hans, Hans-Peter. And we, our guest from France is Antoine Lespes from Domaine Lafarge and he's got biochar trials going on in that vineyard. And our guest from Germany, Claudia Kamann from Geisenheim University, and also a member of the board of the International Biochar Initiative. So very, very exciting and um, uh, different perspectives and also different um, sort of applications of biochar on the panel today. And I would love to just get into the discussion. So um, Claudia, I thought maybe we could start with you. Um, and if you could talk about the origins of the um, of, of biochar as an application, it has ancient um, ancient origins and you have um, you have studied those. So if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a little bit about the origins of biochar and how how it's come to be sort of rediscovered, if you will. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting, uh, sorry, uh, for, sorry, <laughs> for first, uh, I want to say thanks for inviting me, so I'm really happy to be here. Um, yeah, the origins uh, really range back about more than 2,000 years, maybe even up to seven to 8,000 8, years, so they have been found uh, soils that are anthropogenic, so humans made them uh, in several regions. So there were in, in about the 1960s, um, a soil scientist named Wim Sembrak um, discovered first that the Amazon region held some soils that had a high uh, black color, were more fertile than normal soils are in the Amazon region, which is, these are tropical soils, they're highly weathered. Um, normally lack cation exchange capacity and so on. Um, and he found those soils to be quite different from the surroundings and they were associated with settlements, former settlements in, in what we now perceive as pristine jungle, which it's probably not because humans have lived there. So modern kind of research estimates that there might have lived up to 8 million or maybe even more people in the Amazon basin, or what we now know is a kind of jungle, um, which is, it is probably not. And um, these soils were enriched in charcoal also, but it was not the only one. If you look at these soils, a colleague of, of, of ours, um, Bruno Glaser, he did his PhD work there, um, and he described that most of these soils had about down to one meter step, 50 tons of black carbon and much more in humus, which was not charcoal, not black carbon. And um, the interesting thing was this additional humus, because um, normally these soils, I mean, you have high temperatures and quick degradation processes. So whenever you add um, organic residues, they are decomposing very fast and normally don't, you don't have much humus in those soils. And so that was quite surprising. And it's not just the charcoal, it's this kind of fertile enrichment that makes these soils special. Uh, they are called terra preta, which is from the Portuguese for black soil. 
and they are kind of treasured and valued by people and often these soils are even kind of taken and sold on the market for gardens and for potting or what else um, just because they are so different and their fertility still persists and that had researchers baffled for um, and that kind of triggered biochar research when it became clear that this charcoal is so persistent and it once was biomass and that biomass once was photosynthesis meaning co2 taken from the atmosphere and being stored in biomass and uh, so we realized that this could be a method to get CO2 out of the atmosphere and nowadays you find these kind of soils when people knew what to look for they found them in different parts of the world not just in in the amazon basin those so-called amazon dark earths but also in uh, africa so they're they're called african dark earths um, in liberia in ghana and uh, people are still active actively making them actually and it's always a combination of organic residues and uh, charcoal like products i mean you can't call it charcoal if if you make it from uh, residue from nutshells or peanut hulls or something like that. So that's why it's mostly called biochar when the in intention is to use it as a material. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a great um, segue into a question I had for Hans Peter, which um, I, you know, I spoke briefly in the introduction about the um, about the production techniques involved in creating biochar um, in, in the sort of modern era and in an industrial setting and how critical it is to understand how any biochar that you might use is made. Um, Hans-Peter, could you speak to that? And, and, um, and also Claudia, if you have more to add to that bit of it. Yeah, uh, biochar um, can be made in very different ways. You need heat and you need to avoid the um, presence of air. And as Claudia said, there was biochar already 7,000 years ago. Um, there was a possibility to make it without high technology. However, today um, there are higher tech technologies, and this is something that costs about 2 million uh, euro to produce something like 1,000 tons of biochar per year. So those um, facilities not only produce biochar, but they also produce heat. And sometimes they can also produce electricity. So you have essentially these three products uh, from the pyrolysis process. And the higher uh, the technology is, uh, the better you can use all of the three products. However, you can also produce biochar in your backyard or in your vineyard using, uh, for example, pruning wood uh, in a te technique. Uh, it's called the, the Contiki kiln, which uh, works with open fire uh, that protects uh, the biomass from oxygen. And um, this is a kind of ancient method that could have been used in the same way 2000 years ago and can be used on every farm in the world. And today, this is the method um, that produces most of the biochar all over the world. 
So you have higher technology in Europe, in North America and in Australia. Um, China is, is, is developing its own uh, industry uh, with other requirements, but they're going large scale too. But outside of these regions, um, practically all of the biochar is, is still made in a way that could have been done uh, 2000 years ago. However, the quality to, um, to finalize this, this excourse, the quality of a Kontiki biochar is not uh, less good than of industrial method. So the main advantage of the, of the industrial method is uh, the additional use of the thermic energy and uh, transformation in electricity. But uh, from the biochar quality point of view, um, traditional uh, biochar making is as good as industrial. Claudia, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, maybe just a little image for everybody's head to explain why this open uh, biochar making process that Hans-Peter described is working. <laughs> Everybody knows what happens when you light a match. You normally see you have a thermal reaction with the chemicals at the front when you make this. And then you have the flame and the flame is normally going slowly up the little piece of wood. And then you can see under the flame that the wood gets black. And it does not go to ash. It only starts going to ash when the flame has moved on. And that means you have a hot piece of wood. And as long as the flame consumes the oxygen around this little piece of wood, it stays charcoal. And only when the flame moves away and the charcoal is still very hot, then it, it, it falls down to ash. And this is how this process that Hans-Peter described, which is low tech and can be done by everyone, essentially, um, works because the flames are protecting the biochar that forms below from being totally oxidized to ash. So that's that's an easy process and everybody can do it, but it's time consuming and in societies where time and labor is the main co cost factor, it's probably not uh, the thing that will yeah make biochar available for everyone um, on a larger scale, I guess. Antoine, uh, you've used biochar in a viticultural setting, and I think there's no time like the present to uh, get into your experience. Can you describe um, how you've applied it, when you applied it, um, and, and whether or not you've seen any results yet? Yes. Um, first, I, I want to say thank you uh, for, for having me. Uh, yeah, such an honor to be here with uh, such great names of biochar and you, Mimi, for the Regen movement. Um, in the in the region we are with the with the domaine Lafage, there is a, a strong water scarcity. We don't really have uh, access to water for cultivation or even for irrigation or even rainfall. Um, so we decided in 2021 to launch a research project uh, called Water Cultivation to um, to increase the resilience of our crops of our vineyards to to drought. Um, we divided the different experimentation we have in vegetative materials, check, and agronomical practices. And biochar is, uh, is part of the, the agronomical practices. So we first uh, applied, started an experimentation with biochar in 2000, 
22, not the, the last vintage, but the one before, um, where we mixed it with, uh, with compost uh, as a rate of one quarter biochar and three quarter compost. We let it co-compost for several weeks. And then we, um, we applied it the nearest possible to the root zone. So we dug a trench uh, after having done a, a pit to check the root zone and we applied it to nearest the, near the root zone. The, the biochar we used was made actually with a, with a Kontiki from, uh, from Itaka Institute uh, with uh, Hans Peter Schmidt. And uh, it was from Spain. Uh, it was applied in a, in a plot of 2.4 hectares divided in three modalities of uh, 0.8 hectares each. Uh, one modality of biochar and compost, one modality of compost alone, and uh, one untreated um, control. Uh, then uh, last vintage, uh, this vintage, for, for the next vintage, sorry, we, uh, we will have another experimentation on the plantation of the year. So with no root zone already established uh, for the vines. So we applied it, everything is the same. Uh, it's not the same biochar, but it's the same mix with compost. Um, but the, the only different thing is the way we applied it as uh, we don't have a root system already established. We applied it on the floor and uh, digged it with a uh, with cultivation tool. For the, for the first experimentation, uh, we don't really have results yet because we applied it a bit late in May because we experienced uh, a very uh, intense uh, rainfall in March and April. So it wasn't possible to apply biochar because uh, the, the soil were, was wet and we don't want to, to walk in the soil and it's wet, so we waited for, for the soil to dry and then we applied it. And since then it did not rain. So we, we were not uh, able to experience the, 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 the ability of the biochar to, to, to store this water and to increase the, the water holding capacity of our soil. And for the, for the next vintage, we, uh, we, we will see if we, we have results, but we, we are hoping for some. Definitely. I love that you um, that you've been so careful about setting this up as a trial. I I think that's so important when when anybody in viticulture or any type of farming application is is looking at something as at a particular intervention, especially where the soil is concerned, to do a trial um, to be able to have that check on whether or not the results that you're seeing are really because of the intervention that you've made. Will you be separating, um, will you be keeping the trial separate all the way to the winemaking? Sorry, it, uh, it lagged a bit for the... Just wondering if you are going to keep the trials separate all the way to the winemaking, will you be making wines separately? Uh so the, the idea, um, we are wine producer. So definitely we want to check if there is a, a, an impact on the wine. Uh, what we are following uh, is the, the berry uh, sugar accumulation. So, so we know that from uh, Verizon, the, the sugar starts to accumulate and then it reaches a plateau. And then from this plateau, uh, 10 days after you will have a certain um, type of fruit and 20 days after a certain type, another type of fruits, more mature, let's say fresh fruit and mature fruit. 
the idea is with biochar and increasing the water holding capacity is to avoid uh, blockage of some varieties in loading the sugar. So we have a better uh, wine style, either fresh fruit or mature fruit. So definitely the, the idea is to, uh, to go to the to winemaking. Will you have a chance to measure, for example, the uh, water potential or the pre-dawn pre water potential? So that's, oh, that's great. <laughs> so We do. Yeah. So we, we actually are measuring the, 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 the we will do soil analysis mm -hmm. for, to check physical, chemical and biological pa parameters of the soil fertility. We do berry volume, berry accumulation, sugar mm -hmm. loading. Uh, we are working closely with the with the Institut Agro and mm -hmm. uh, Alain Deloire, which is uh, uh, one of the experts uh, in, on the vine physiology. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of this is checked regarding the water potential of the vines. We do pre-done uh, water mm -hmm. potential. Yeah, so, so that's great because it could be that there's an early indication then if you if you have different sets that you can track them. So that's really great. <laughs> Yeah, and so in all these parameters, we, we did not see uh, um, very strong results yet. But last week, I was uh, passing through the, the first experimentation, and I, I've seen, but this is something we need to measure, uh, some differences in cover crops, which can be uh, a very good tool for us to, to increase our final organic matter we know that the best way to increase our organic matter and so the water holding capacity of our soil is to use cover crops. But we don't want the cover crops to compete with the vines for water. So if we are able to bring more water to the cover crops without competing with the vines through biochar, it could be a, a very good mix and uh, very good for the, the overall ecosystem, let's say, of the, of the vineyard. Excellent point. In um, at least in my trials that I have done, one of the biggest um, one of the biggest impacts has actually been on the the growth of the floor. I don't call it a cover crop because I don't do any cultivation, but the 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 vineyard floor and the um, the sort of level of vigor on the vineyard floor was definitely impacted by the by the application of biochar. And to me, that's one of the biggest. Um, the biggest exciting points about biochar is just the ecosystem value, not just the value to the, the cash crop itself, but the way that it can be a tool for um, bringing more photosynthesis and more energy into these systems overall. And Hans-Peter, you've also used uh, biochar in, in the vineyard with, with a different, um, a slightly different result and a different perspective. And would you mind, would you mind sharing that with the, with the audience? Yeah, uh, I think it was very similar that what um, what was uh, just described and um, uh, from Antoine, uh, we also mixed biochar uh, with compost and we tried it um, with compost, without compost, only compost and, and control. And um, uh, we, we saw the main effect on the cover crops. It was uh, impressing, um, but we didn't see um, we, we didn't see a real 
significant effects on wine quality. And we later we did uh, biochar trials uh, throughout different vineyards in Europe that uh, we consulted. So we did in, uh, in Sicilia and Tuscany, um, also in the south of France and in Spain. And um, th those were all alkaline soils. And we did at this time, it was in 2009, 10, 11. And it was our early days in biochar research and we didn't have much results from temperate climates and alkaline soils and we we didn't find results that were as significant as the economic impact uh, of buying biochar was so uh, 10 years ago biochar was not as expensive as today but it was very expensive already and now with making your own biochar in the vineyard it becomes a different practice so it's kind of uh, cycling the energy that's produced in the vineyard and it's also about um, creating carbon sinks um, so using the vineyard to extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it in the form of biochar so there are different aspects of using biochar that may not only be uh, increased uh, productivity or quality but now you know every vineyard is very different and uh, every time you have you have um, a spot in your vineyard where you struggle with something where you have a problem there's something is different than than elsewhere and you don't know really why um then biochar could be an option because it's uh, usually when you have a problem it helps solving it <laughs> uh, and then everything is fine when you have you know when you have a vineyard with high biodiversity and in perfect equilibrium you do not intervene so much then um then you would probably not come and, and apply biochar because because you have a system that works and um, the more intensive your production is uh, certainly you have um, ways to um, to improve efficiency of fertilization for example so there are vineyards that work with fertigation um, and with irrigation and in which is not the case uh, in, in France and with, with the vineyards of Antoine, where it's not allowed to irrigate. And then you have different uh, uh, aspects to, to react um, in your vineyard. And so first is the analysis of the vineyards, analysis of the problems, and then think about um, if biochar and how biochar may help to solve these problems but maybe not all vineyards would need it. Yes, another good uh, another good point is, you know, what is the goal of the intervention? Just making an intervention for intervention's sake is, is rarely um, uh, economical in terms of time or real expense. So I think that's a very good point to make if, um, 
if you don't have something to address, then you know probably biochar is uh, both very expensive and um, and possibly not needed. Uh, we have a question that I think it, um, we get we I get a lot at least about um, about biochar, which is I think there's some press out there about the potential negative um, negative effects of biochar or the production techniques around biochar. Uh, Claudia, would you like to speak to to that? Yeah, I think we can both speak to that, Hans-Peter and me, <laughs> because Hans-Peter has been also, uh, or he's been the main driver of having a certification process on the quality of biochar here in Europe um, that was started early on, I think in 2010, back, back in the day or something. <laughs> and um, it was about uh, that a customer can be sure to have a clean biochar when buying it uh, or something which does uh, adhere to all the reg regulations concerning um, the fertilizer laws or the soil protection laws that we have in Germany, Switzerland, Austria, and so on. Um, and that a producer can show and demonstrate that they have a clean biochar to sell. And that was really, I think, a, to a totally important step. And now in, in hindsight, um, it was one of the things that really helped biochar yeah, producers, industry consumers to to do it safe and sound. What could go wrong? So let's investigate that. So when, when could a biochar be bad or have some toxic substances? And that could happen if um, you have a recondensation of the vapors that come out of the biomass. So now when you start pyrolysis, it's like the, that you have kind of, it's called wood gases or syn gases or permanent pyro gases or several different names. Essentially it's carbon monoxide, H2, uh, and also CH4. So that's gases that can be burned, that can replace, if you have a pyrolysis plant, they can reply, uh, replace natural gas, things like that. And But if you have a production process where these gases are led through the biochar in such a way that they can recondensate there, um, then you, uh, PAHs can form, so uh, poly polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And among those are, um, kind of higher molecular ones that are suspected to be uh, inducing cancer or something like that. So okay. if that happens, um, and I've made kind of bio tests where earthworm avoidance test, for example, then you have a pot where you have earthworms on one of uh, on both sides and one of the sides is amended with the biochar you want to test. The other is the same soil, but without biochar. And if there's kind of such substances in it, you will find all the earthworms on the other side. And if you have a good biochar, it often happens that they even prefer the biochar side and go there. So um, you could have these kind of um, toxic substances, but it's now no um, no kind of secret how to produce a biochar that has none of these substances on its surfaces. Um, even Hans-Peter was involved with colleagues in Switzerland who even um, developed a method that could extract biochar is normally a substance that can even clean soils. So if you have a contaminated soils, these kind of chemicals could end up being bound to biochar. And so it's kind of sticking on the biochar surfaces and they developed a new analytical protocol at one of the with one of the researchers who's really renowned for doing such things in uh, at agroscope in switzerland to be really sure that if you ever extract 
or try to search if these substances are there, that you have an analytical protocol that really gets them off. And that was also, I, I think, a totally important step in hindsight so that we can say if, if you use this protocol, if you do this European biochar certification process, that you can be sure that there is none of these substances on the biochar, that you have a clean product. And with the heavy metals, it's um, if you don't have heavy metals in your feedstock too much, normally they don't, I mean, if you make pyrolysis, heavy metals don't evaporize or something. They just stay with your solids. So that if you have heavy metals in your feedstock, you will also have them in the biochar. But if you have normal non-contaminated agricultural waste, you don't have a problem with it. If you have something that had been painted with an azenic paint or something, or with lead or whatever, then you will of course find that in your biochar. This is the reason why you can't just take any kind of feedstock and make biochar out of it. Hans Peter, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, so it's a technical process, and like any technical process, things can go wrong. Um, it's also if you drive the car, you can drive through the states, or you can make uh, ten accidents when you pass the states. So it's it's about uh, doing it in the right way. Therefore, is a certification. Uh, if you have a certified biochar, then things are fine. If you if you make your own biochar with the Contiki, there are guidelines you can download on, on our website. If you do it in the correct way, uh, biochar quality will be as certified. So there's not much to worry about. Um, if, if you compare the effects of pesticides, um, and mineral fertilizers on, on soil life, um, there, there is certainly uh, nothing to worry about. Um, Claudia and I and, and some other colleagues, we, we did a review paper uh, two years ago and investigating biochar effects on economic uh, parameters. And we could show that for all 36 economically uh, relevant economic parameters, biochar did no harm. So in most cases, uh, there was a significant uh, incre uh, increase or improvement, but, but the main message is it, it never did any harm for any of the investigated parameters. And there are more than thousands of studies behind it. So biochar is certainly nothing to worry about. Excellent. And Antoine, we had a, a question for you in the chat as well about the ratio of biochar to compost that you used in your different applications. So it was uh, for this, the two experimentations was it was one quarter biochar and three quarter compost each time. And we mixed it and let it co-compost for several weeks. Um, did you mix the biochar to the already existing compost or did you mix it before you started the composting process? It was at the end of the composting process. Ah, okay. So there was uh, it was given time to react with the compost, but it was not put in there when the compost process started. Yes. Okay, because both is possible. So <laughs> yeah. I, and I've done both. I've actually um I've done co-composting at the beginning of the composting process. I've done um, integration post, 
you know, post composting and then a, a maturation stage. And I've also experimented with feeding it through animals and, and um, in the vineyard system itself. And um, I think another question that comes up a lot, at least it, it, I've heard people talking about this, is the question about the production of biochar and how much CO2 or other greenhouse gas emissions are associated with the, the, with the production process itself. Yeah, I think that we can kind of lay these concerns to rest largely. I mean, one thing that would be unsustainable is if you cut down a native old forest and then you claim to make biochar to save the world. So that's a no-go <laughs> for, for sure. But um, if you um, if you have a sustainable feedstock, um, then it's normally that you need a little bit of energy to start it, like kindling a match, something like that. So you can, with a contiki, you can even start with a match or with whatever tiny amount of flame you can start with. Um, if you have a modern pyrolysis plant, you need a little bit of energy to start it. But with a normal average term facility, it's like having one camping gas bottle of gas to get it started. And then if you um, kind of burn the pyro, pyro gases, for example, to obtain thermal energy uh, or to make uh, electricity out of it, you can have this kind of surplus energy, you know, fueling this process forward. So it's nothing where you put energy in, it's something where you get energy out, but you don't get as much as if you would burn everything because some of the energy or some of the uh, carbon in that case, most of the carbon is still then in the end product biochar. So you can't slaughter the cow twice. <laughs> you can have, but you have then part of it in, in the biochar and part of it is the product, uh, this kind of uh, pyro gases that you can use to, um, to replace natural gas. And one of the, I think one of the most, um, exciting things, at least in the United States, is where we have um, we have experienced a, a sort of catastrophic leap forward in terms of the severity of wildfires because of years of keeping for forest fires out of these systems. We have a sort of tremendous overproduction of carbon in some of our wild areas that is currently being, um, it's strategically being thinned to help mitigate that fire um, that's keeping fire out of the system for so long and the potential for catastrophic wildfire and that those feedstocks could be potential, um, you know, sort of ongoing feedstocks for cogen facilities where energy production is part of that. But in rural areas, especially, you know, isolated areas that sort of are on mountains and things like that, I think um, heating greenhouses passively is also a potential, um, you know, sort of co-benefit of producing biochar and that then that biochar could go towards um, sort of re-establishing um, re a carbon component where it's been lost on agricultural lands. And so there's a nice sort of potential circular economy there. Um, we're not looking at any new questions in the chat right now, but I'm definitely want to encourage anybody who has a question uh, to put it in the chat. Um, 
I might add something regarding the greenhouse questions because um, in this um, study we, we did that Hans-Peter mentioned, we also looked at um, things, if you apply biotrit to soils, one of the most common effects that we observe in terms of environment is a reduction in the N2O emissions. N2O is a very, nitrous oxide is a, quite a powerful greenhouse gas, which has overall um, a kind of global warming potential that's about 300 times that of CO2 uh, over 100 years. So it's quite kind of concern because if you use fertilizers, nitrogen fertilizers, uh, you will always increase the amount of nitrous oxide that's produced. And so to see that there's a substance out there that can help reduce this kind of thing that you can't decarbonize. I mean, you can move, let's say, from electricity production, you can move move from coal-fired power plants to wind and solar power and so on and so on. But there's always residual emissions you can't get rid of, and that's agricultural emissions. So this is kind of an environmental benefit that's quite interesting. Also, um, a lot of you know, of a lot of research goes into looking at if we if we produce fertilizers in such a way that biochar is a part of it from the start, um, if we can probably have a kind of reducing effect in every amount of dose of fertilizer we use and then enrich a soil in biochar over time. So like a soil evolution, not a kind of soil revolution by dumping a huge amount in one in one go. So that's also maybe an interesting aspect with regard to biochar use in agriculture. Maybe not so much in viticulture, but at least um, I find it interesting to to think along along those lines, how to Reap the environmental benefits and how to make it uh, economically feasible to do so. Another thing that's also quite interesting is that um, we often observe a reduction in nitrate leaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, in some of the meta studies, it did not happen immediately, but over time, when the biochar has reacted a little bit with the soil, and Hans-Peter and me, we, uh, he did very nice composting experiments with his co-composting of biochar and so on a long time ago. And we repicked particles from the compost and we saw that they were tremendously enriched in nitrate. That was really funny because the textbooks told us um, this is not going to happen. <laughs> but uh, biochar didn't know, so it happened. Uh, <laughs> and that was quite, quite a funny finding. And now there's a little bit more of uh, research out there regarding this effect and we see that if a protonation happens so if something acidic is happening around biochar if you put it into an acidic solution with nitrate in it it sorbs the nitrate from this uh, solution we did some other experiments where we had such a nitrate enriched biochar and used pot experiments to see if the plants would get the nitrate if they get it out of the biochar, and they did. I, I had the suspicion before that part of the nitrate would still be stuck in there, but they nearly got everything out. So that was kind of an interesting thing. And I think it might add um, to a kind of N retention or to to keep the, the mobile form of N that normally is washed away or is easily washed away, uh, to keep it in, in your vineyard system. So that might be interesting, in particular, since you have some acidic residue in, in viticulture, like uh, grape pomace and either yeast, yeast slurry and things like that. So that might also be a break to go. I don't know so, so much about studies who've done that yet, but yeah, I would like to go there. <laughs> Fascinating. 
We did get a, another question. Um, what do you think about combining pyrolysis and anaerobic digestion in from an energetic point of view? So I think they're talking about um, anaerobic digestion of uh, like dairy manures or something like that. Hans-Peter? Yeah, it is, uh, it's a very interesting combination. Some people do it because in anaerobic digestion, you have the digestate, uh, which is in fact the part that the microbes cannot digest anymore. And that's perfect. So it's a lot of lignin and uh, interesting uh, stuff that's good for pyrolysis. So you could recycle the remaining carbon because the digestate is not so interesting for soil because of the disequilibrium of the different carbon species that you have in, in, in the digestate. So people use it for fertilization for the nitrogen and then phosphorus that's, that's in the digestate, but because of this imbalance of the carbons is no good for, for soil. So it's, it's good, it's very interesting to, to use it for, for pyrolysis. And then in pyrolysis, as I said before, you have different products. So this is uh, the biochar and the gas. And if you condensate the gas, um, you, you get the liquid. And, and this liquid uh, can be used for digestion. So in fact, to, to have both processes to produce uh, clean methane gas uh, and biochar and have a complete cycle for the carbon and for the nutrients, it's very interesting. Um, you, if you have the digestate, um, this digestate usually, depending on the technology, is kind of liquid. So before paralyzing it, you would have to do a, a solid liquid separation. And the liquid you can use to charge the biochar that you produce uh, with the pyrolysis. So you produce that uh, biochar-based fertilizer. Uh, you use the carbon completely and you recycle the nutrients. It's, it's, it's a smart combination of technologies. Yeah, and probably um, something to follow as biochar production kind of comes along industrially. And along those lines, I think it's important um, that we at least touch on the, the costs of produce both producing biochar. Uh, Hans-Peter, you spoke to this a little bit, but I think Antoine, uh, before we got started, you were talking about the cost of doing these trials at Domaine Lafage. And, um, and it's very, I think, Thank you for for taking that um, taking that leap on behalf of others who maybe can't afford it yet. But can you talk about how, you know, what kind of investment that was for your company, and um, and then also what you're doing in terms of you know kind of looking at it regionally and how biochar production might um, the costs of that might come down. So uh, in France, um, we think there are more or less 3,000 tons of biochar produced. Uh, and the cost of one ton is uh, for the less expensive 1,000 euros, and it can go to 3,000 euros. So um, as we just spoke, if you want to apply it broadly for the uh, cover crop uh, impact, let's say, uh, you will have to uh, apply it more or less at 10 tons per hectare. 
So it goes uh, easily to 10,000 euros per hectare, uh, which is very expensive in our area. It's, uh, it's too much expensive and uh, there is no money for, for that. So with, uh, for, with Domaine Lafage, um, we started to think on uh, producing our own biochar. And so we, uh, we started discussions with a, a local company uh, specialized in waste management. They are treating different kinds of waste, uh, every type of waste. And um, to build a, a, a high-tech pyrolysis plant with them because they have a need of thermal energy for another, another industry. And we think, so as it uh, has been said before with, with Hans, that if you play with the, the, three, the three products of the pyrolysis, we can decrease the cost of the biochar production and make it affordable. And this is the only way to, to use it and to um, encourage the, the use of this, uh, of, of this practice that can store carbon, uh, create green energy, and uh, help you in the region uh, transition for your, for your soil. So this is something we are deeply uh, investigating. That's very awesome. And uh, Claudia, Hans-Peter, Antoine, do, do any of you know, at least in Europe, um, of any government subsidy programs or grant programs that are specifically focused on biochar applications? Is any of that happening? There's a little bit of that happening in the United States. No, to my knowledge, there's no kind of grant in place that encourage people to use it. It would be great if there were. <laughs> but uh, what they did lately is uh, fund more research in that direction. So there was a call from the uh, Federal Ministry for um, Agriculture and what is it? And nutrition, I think, if I translate it. Um, and they had a call to apply for biochar projects um, in two fields. One was how to go forward, you know, modern implementation. And the other field was to reinvestigate older experiments uh, that have been kind of applied 10 years ago. And I think uh, that's probably interesting and it might be interesting for kind of acidic, more subtropical or warmer soils, because um, there are some papers out there that show that if you have a kind of um, this, the one study was from uh, the US, one was from uh, Australia, and they showed that after 10 years, you had a, a higher increase in the non-biochar soil organic carbon, like with the terra preta soils, um, where you had biochar applied. And that was one study was in Australia and they sh really showed they could kind of lift this kind of upper limit of the humus uh, buildup in soils. Um, and the other was in, um, I think it was uh, Minnesota. I don't know. I have to revisit the paper. Um, and that was three agricultural systems and they what they had in common and also with the Australia study, they had a lot of kind of permanent being green, either were grasslands or it was um, kind of uh, switchgrass production or maize uh, mm -hmm. cropping with no tillage. 
So that was a kind of, and this is where it meets the kind of principles of different ways to go regenerative on soils. And for me, one of the biggest questions still open is if biochar can be used to help increase processes that we already seek on in, in other ways. So that's not a kind of, you use either biochar or you do kind of things like uh, low tillage and so on for your and green cover for your soils, but to try to combine them. And that's not been so much done. Another thing I think might help be helpful or interesting in terms of biochar is um, when we reinvestigate things with regard to contaminants and um, we often now start to find problems with chemicals we used for a long time, like PFAS. And um, it has been shown repeatedly that biochar is very good at kind of sorbing these. So that if you have um, have a soil with a problem or a soil where, you know, you might have an enrichment in copper, um, there are situations where biochar can be used to reduce its biological availability. What we also found in the metal study was that uh, when this heavy metal problem existed, that there are several metal studies showing that um, biochar decreased the um, concentration of these heavy metals in the crop. So that's also pretty interesting, I think. So I think we need uh, to look a little bit more for these kind of environmental things and then to integrate biochar in the kind of way viticulture is done. So if you, for example, co um, put it into the paper, uh, grape pomace and either compost or um, do kind of fermentation so that you can bring it back in spring and not in winter time so that you don't have this rainfall and leaching away of the nutrients that come from the de uh, decomposition of the grape pomace, uh, you might have the greater benefit doing it that way. So, and then to use the grape pomace, for example, to have it uh, below the rootstocks so that you can skip the first uh, manual, um, you know, weeding with yeah. with a kind of, I don't know what the machinery is called in, um, in the English, I'm sorry. <laughs> the string weeder. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it, it is a, there are so many different applications of biochar and so many different um, sort of contexts for using it that I think it's um, it's really a very exciting and expanding field. And um, before uh, we still have about five minutes and um, Hans Peter, there was a question about the sort of independent producer who wants to produce their own biochar. You mentioned the Contiki um, and this person is asking about whether or not there's a resource that you can point them to, to get more information about um, sort of uh, individual scale um, biochar production. Do, do you wanna say um, anything about that? Yeah, you, you, you can visit the itaka-institute.org website and you'll find a link to Contiki. There's a lot of resources about the Contiki, um, how, how to dig a Contiki in soil. And if you want, we also have open source um, designs of metal Contiki. And just send me an email and I will forward you the plans. And we will uh, have- In fact, it's, you know, we introduced it in 2014 uh, for, for experiments that we did in Nepal and 
we, we put it open access and now it's uh, we, we try to follow track where we, we know it's in more than 90 countries um, that people use it because it's really super easy uh, to make biochar where you have biomass and um, we, we see that as a, as a bridge to, to more efficient technology but that will take so much more time especially in the tropics and especially for smaller scale farming and it's a, it's a fantastic tool if you do it once or twice per year for for your residues to recycle the carbon and, and also to uh, to think about your vineyards and the climate and everything when you do the biochar it's a it's beautiful craftsmanship Yes. And in the United States, Kelpie Wilson uh, of Wilson Biochar, if you just Google Wilson Biochar, also has um, lots of resources on her website about home scale biochar production and farm scale biochar production. So those are both excellent resources. And I think important to think about in terms of um, just the scalability of these things and how, um, how expensive they can be most things can always be accomplished with some ingenuity and investment. And uh, we do have an ongoing source of feedstocks in vineyards. And so that's a, a pretty excellent resource if you check out Hans Peter's site. Um, one last question here, looks like we have time. Is there a minimum value of feedstock annual volume uh, to keep a plant going? And it probably, that's probably depends a lot on um, the plant size and where it's located. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I, for the last two minutes or last minute, I would just like to add two um, scientific trials I know of. I'm sorry. <coughs> where kind of <clears throat> very positive effects have been found. Um, one was in Tuscany with a very hard setting clay soil. And they plowed in biochar to uh, greater depths. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit ill. And they found a kind of strong increase in the crop yield when it was um, very dry. Poor Claudia, she's suffering. I will also say as, as a closing that, um, you know, probably the, the single most exciting thing that I've observed in, in my biochar trials is the um, it's related to the water holding capacity and the the um, the structure of the soil, but in the heat dome of 2020, 2021, I beg your pardon, um, our soil temperatures in the biochar trials were almost 30 degrees lower than neighboring soils of very various different um, you know tilled untilled. Um, composted, et cetera. I mean, we had a very notable response in terms of soil temperature where we had applied the biochar. And I think, I mean, that, I think in terms of a local cooling effect and um, under extreme circumstances, that that's one of the, the more beneficial things that I've observed. Um, Hans, Peter, or Antoine, do you have any closing thoughts or, or things you'd like to share? Actionable takeaways? from our ladies behind the scenes wanting actionable takeaways. Yeah, just just go ahead and do, do it yourself. Make the biochar, don't think about uh, the big technology. Uh, learn it uh, in the hand way if you're a wine grower. Uh, that's something that, that, uh, that will 
will do yourself good and will do no harm to your vineyard. And it's um, it, it's it's a beautiful way to to understand how nature works. How about you, Antoine? The same. Do it yourself with uh, either uh, a small technology. I've done it myself for several years now with a uh, open Kentucky design in my garden for for my tomatoes, and uh, now uh, I want to play with a uh, with a big machine. Because I think it's, uh, if you can, it's a very strong and powerful way to to increase local uh, and circular economy around on your with local population. Uh, we have industrial who who need uh, thermal energy. We have growers that need help in the regenerative transition. We need to store carbon. So if we can do it uh, at a larger scale. Uh, let's do it, and uh, this is what we want to do at uh, at the Menafage. Excellent. Well, I want to I want to thank all of you for um, joining us today, and wish you all the best of luck in the coming year and with your research, um, Claudia and Hans Peter and um, Antoine with your vintage coming up. We look forward to following your results. Thank you, Christina and Marta, as always, for being the just incredible force of nature that you are and, and providing so many free and open resources. Um, we will certainly put a lot of resources on the Porta Protocol website um, following this for anybody who wants to follow biochar more closely. And with that, I'm pretty sure we're out of time. So thank you all so much for your time and for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you all.